is so good to see all of you here in the uh, sanctuary and over in Brown Chapel and uh, live stream. We are so happy to have you. I apologize for the late start this morning. The speaker we had in first service messed everything up. Um, we have reason to celebrate today. Um, number one, Frida Taylor is here somewhere. I think she's in here. Frida, would you stand and just wave at everybody? We love you so much. She and Jack, along with the rest of the Word, Spirit, and Power team have been such a blessing to us through the years, and we are so glad to have her with us today. Um, we also realize that today is Father's Day, so congratulations to the fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers. Um, it's, it's Emancipation Day. It's a time that marks a significant event in the history of our nation. And most importantly, it's the Lord's Day. So we have a lot of reasons to celebrate today. Let's follow our custom and look to the screen as we pray the Lord's Prayer together. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Father, we pray for the grace of God to cover everything that is said. Help me to speak well Help every speaker in every department throughout the campus to speak well and let every one of us hear well. You have brought us together for a purpose today, and we say welcome, Holy Spirit. Thank you for joining yourself to us. And we want to slow down just enough right here to make ourselves conscious. Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place. God of life and love, you are welcome in this place. Lord God Almighty, you are welcome in this place. We bow before you. We want your will to be done. We want your kingdom to come. We want the purposes of God to be established. And we say, do what only you can do today, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, for those of you that may just be joining us, some of you for the first time, we have been on a journey this year uh, toward fullness. You see the uh, uh, logo behind us. We believe that everything that we need is in Jesus and everything we need has been promised through Jesus. And we are moving toward fullness. We have potentially everything we will ever need in Jesus, but there is also that dynamic in which we are working to make ourselves available to the fullness. Paul said that um, our goal is to win Christ. Now, he wasn't saying there in Philippians 3 when he said our goal is to win Christ, he wasn't saying that we start on a journey and maybe we'll be saved. It was an old miner's uh, word 
That was translated in the King James Version, when. And when a miner went into the wealth of the mine shaft, he was to go out and win the coal or win the gold or win whatever they were digging for. It was already there. It was already provided. They knew it was present, but they went in to dig it out. And I know that we, we have... We have analogies and comparisons that overlap. We know we're not saved by works. We're always saved by grace. But there is our responsibility to just keep digging, keep growing. It's all in Him. And we're thankful for that process. We began uh, taking about three weeks to talk about the meaning of fullness. Then we started looking at fullness from the perspective of the great words of the Christian faith. Christianity, the experience of Christianity is so multifaceted and so beautiful that one word cannot describe it. So we spent our time going over these 13 words. Some of the words had to do with our choice. Some had to do with the change that that choice resulted in. Some of the words have to do with the consequences. Because we made this choice, God did a change in us, and the result of it is this. And then there were a handful of words that had to do with the challenge. So we finished that up, and now we want to take just a few weeks this summer um, to look at fullness from another perspective. Not great words that explain what happened to us, but we want to view it as a journey now. And last week we talked about the wilderness and the dynamics of how Egypt and deliverance from Egypt was comparable to salvation. How the uh, going into the promised land was comparable to the victorious Christian life. And we learned to overcome. But we said there is that necessary, unappreciated, unwanted, <laughs> almost censored part of our life called the wilderness, but the wilderness comes before fullness because Jesus said, and Moses said, and Joshua said, that it's in the wilderness that we learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the house of God, uh, house of God, mouth of God. And um, loved ones, no matter what you have been promised by way of inheritance, you can't really get to it except by way of the wilderness. You have to learn that your total dependency is on the Lord. So we're going to begin for a few weeks to talk about the journey. We started last week by way of introduction. Today I want to talk to you about some fellow travelers. How many of you know that you have fellow travelers with you? Israel went out, and boy, were they an interesting crowd, a mixed multitude. I'm so thankful that the church is big enough to, to say whosoever will may come, but not everybody is as serious about the journey as others. And one of the most interesting dynamics of the Christian faith are your fellow travelers. Uh, you could subtitle fellow travelers, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, it's, it's not a criticism of the church. This is the way Christ designed the church. We need to be careful that we don't become uh, vocal and hurtful about those that aren't as devoted as we are for a couple of reasons. Number one, we may find that we're not as devoted as we think we are sometimes. And number two, 
this journey, journey by definition is a process that takes time. And you may find that the people that stuck with you very closely at the beginning of the journey didn't stay close to you. Or you may find that folks that you gave up on and said they'll never be a part of my life, they become your best friends. So we are going to have a different type of message today. I'm going to tell you in advance, it's two parts. It's uh, real creative titles. Today is Fellow Travelers, okay? Next week is Fellow Travelers Continued. So real creative titles. And I want to tell you what we want to do today is twofold. I'm going to be very specific. This is where we're headed with the altar time. We're asking, number one, for the process to begin right now, for the Holy Spirit to come and begin to give us insight into our fellow travelers. Not, not criticism, not anything bad. I want you to see how important your fellow travelers are, but I also want you to see that everybody is different. Just like Israel in their wilderness, we travel through our wilderness also with a mixed multitude. Uh, and when the Bible says that Israel went into the wilderness with a mixed multitude, it, it meant literally that there were some on this level, some on this level, some didn't believe at all, some were ready to inherit the land it seemed, although they were few and God spent 40 years refining the material that he brought into that place. So we know that God is the refiner. We know that he's going to build his church. I'm not worried about you and you shouldn't be worried about me because even though we're all weak and flawed, God said he's able to complete the process that he begins. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to the place of completion. But I want you to see what the crowd around you looks like, not with a critical eye, but with an understanding eye. And number two, I want you to understand that even though the fellow travelers that you and I are in process with may sometimes help us, may sometimes hinder us, they may sometimes thrill us, sometimes let us down, everybody serves a purpose. And what's important is that we know how to process. When I was a very young pastor, I, I had, you know, like every young pastor, and, and I suppose every old pastor, every middle-aged pastor, have some disappointment, some unrealistic expectation, or some unrealized dream. And the first time I hit a rough spot, I wasn't mature enough to just know how to handle it and shake it off. I had to go through some I had to figure out some tough things. And I imagine during about a year and a half period where I really felt like I was struggling, I probably talked to 10 or 12 people that um, I started out with my friends and I realized they're all in the same mess I'm in. Most of them couldn't help me. So I started talking to some older and wiser pastors and I said, this is what I'm struggling with. And, and I, I remembered, I tried to count, I, I, probably there were more, but I remembered specifically about 12 people over the period of a year and a half I talked to. 10 of the 12 people basically said, that ain't nothing. One of them even laughed in my face, said, that's nothing. Let me tell you what I've been through. And of those 10 out of the 12 people that I remembered, all they did is tell me they've been through stuff like I've been through and they never got over it. 
Uh, I was 20 and struggling, or in my 20s and struggling. They were in their 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s, and they were still struggling. They were still carrying the baggage. And I was saying, what do I do? How do I, how do I handle this? And I remember 10 of those people just let me know, this is just life. You're in it for the long haul. This is, uh, you know, it reminded me of my cousin's jacket. He came home from Vietnam and he had a jacket. And many of you that were in Vietnam were, you remember seeing these jackets. It says, when I die, I will go to heaven because I have spent my time in hell. And, you know, that was the way a lot of Vietnam vets felt. And you know what I found out? A lot of pastors felt that way. You know, when I die, I'll go to heaven because I've spent my time in hell. And I thought, this is not going to be a good road. But now let me tell you what the other two told me. They told me virtually the same thing, and it can be summarized in two words. Both of them, both my pastor and another pastor that I spoke to, basically said the same thing. They said, we all have these tough times. And he said, I want you to know this. It's not just pastors that have tough times. You're pastoring people that have times just as hard as yours. And they helped me to understand that uh, I'm, I'm I'm not a paradigm of virtue for suffering. We all suffer. And I need to make this statement clear. I'm not here today to talk about my journey. I'm here to talk about your journey. I'm here to talk about your traveling companions. I'm here to talk about your victories and your defeats and your friends and your enemies. So please don't think this is a pastor looking back. Move me out of the thing and I want to talk about you. I want to talk about the steps you're taking. When I look at the desert sands, I see your steps, not mine. That's not what we're talking about today. But this is what they said. They said, you got to do two things. Number one, you got to settle. And number two, you got to settle. You'd say, boy, that was really helpful. I didn't have a clue. What they were saying with the first settle is understand this is the way life is. It's true if you're a pastor or a housewife, a gas station attendant or an attorney. It's true if you're a school teacher or in retail sales. sales. You have to settle the issue that people are going to let you down from time to time. You also have to settle the issue that some people are going to treat you better than you ever thought you deserved. This is the nature of life. We live in a broken world and, and, and the people that we love the most are still broken. We will find that the best of men, my pastor said, is still just a man. So he said, you've got to settle. And I said, okay. Didn't help, but later it helped. You know, it's like going and getting one of those big shots, you know, and it hurts when you get it. It doesn't do any good, but you realize about 12 hours later, it's doing good. You know, it's helping me. And I said, well, what do you mean after I settle, I have to settle? They said, the determination of how you live your Christian life, the determination of your reward in the kingdom, it's all going to depend on how you settle what you've settled with. Are you going to let it eat you alive Are you going to let it be something that you carry the rest of your life? And loved ones, I want to tell you, that advice saved my bacon. It really did. Now, there's been stuff I carried. There's been stuff I carried a long time. My wife can tell you, but she loves me and is too nice to do that. 
but there's stuff that I carried just short term, got over it. In fact, my pastor used to tell me one of the ways you can measure your maturity is how long does it take from you to go to offense to praising God for what just happened? That's a mark of maturity. And I think I do pretty good. Sometimes it's within two, three years. But it ought to be seconds. It ought to be seconds. And every once in a while, I'll go from offense to victory in a few seconds, sometimes in a few uh, hours, a few minutes. But sometimes I've carried stuff for years, and it can get really cumbersome to try to carry stuff for years. So God gives us a way out of that, and that is we can settle it. We can settle. We can determine what we're going to do with the things that we've already settled are going to happen. And I know that sounds like mind over matter and just having a good attitude, but I'm telling you, when God gives us the ability to say you can settle this and you can live with it this way instead of this way, if we don't do that, that's going to hinder us. I believe that we are headed for a bigger storm than we've had the last three years. I believe tougher days are coming. You say, well, you, you need to be positive. You need to have faith. I do have faith and I am positive. But I tell you what I've also understood. God right now is doing something in us that is of critical importance. I believe that our loving Father in heaven is letting us have wave after wave after wave of garbage and junk and difficulty so that two things will happen. We will come to the place where we realize we have no one to help us but him. And number two, he's moving us to the place where our heart is so pure, we stop looking for someone to blame. And we become known for our love. Right now, I don't think our culture is known for its love. I don't think the church is known for its love. Now, I think our church is exceptional. I think we're, I mean, I, 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 I hate to say this online, because, you know, it's probably told me in confidence, but Jesus told me this is the greatest church on earth. So I, no, well, I feel that way. I, do, I really do. I, there's not another place on the planet I'd want to pastor. You are world-class believers. You are family. I love you with all my heart. But I want to tell you, the church in general, the church in general is still looking for someone to blame with all of our difficulty, whether it's a politician or a system or a election board or, you know, everything's broken and everything's somebody else's fault. And the only people we love are those who say exactly what we say and are in agreement with us. I've never seen anything like it. And it's not just this or this. It's all over the place. You know, you, you, are, you are a devout believer if you believe what I believe. But that's not the basis of our belief. Loved ones, please, I know I sound like a broken record that just keeps skipping over this over and over again, but until we get it, we're never going to get out of it. <laughs> We've got to understand that God is moving us to the place where we have nothing to depend on except him. You say, God, God doesn't work that way. God will do the same thing for me. God will do the same thing for Frida. God will do the same thing for all of us that he did for Jacob. In our struggles and in our wrestling, we say that I'm going to win this thing and God touches our hip so that we can no longer walk. Amen. And all we can do is cling. 
I want to tell you, Jacob walked with a limp the rest of his life. But in those first moments, all he could do is hold on. If he didn't hold on, he was going down. God is moving each of us to the place where we have nothing to keep us standing except to hold on to him. And then when we get that, when we get that, we'll understand two things, we'll under, which is part of the second thing. We'll understand, number one, that they will know you are my disciples by your love. It's not going to be what you think it is that turns the world uh, and, and brings a harvest in. It's going to be our ability to love. The reason the harvest has not come yet, or at least is not as widespread as it is, I am convinced of this as surely as I'm sitting here. We don't have a platform of love sufficient to hold all the stuff that's coming in. We've got to learn to love. And that means we've got to stop pointing the finger. It means that we've got to depend totally on the Lord. So what does the Lord do? He says, I want you to know that in order for you to navigate these new days properly, you've got to look at what's around you, get a good look at your fellow travelers and settle. Not everybody's going to be on the same level and then settle what you're going to do about it. Are you going to just carry this the rest of your life, or are you going to let God bring healing? I'm asking, this is the altar call right now. I'm telling you before we get into the message what we're after. We're after the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, where we say, Lord, show me what is in me. Show me what I have carried that I have no business carrying. Show me the offense that I won't let go of. Show me the blame that I'm still ascribing. Show me the pointed finger I have that Isaiah said was hindering everything God wanted to do in the days of, of, of Judah. Show me, Lord, what I've done with my hurt. And then next Sunday, we're going to do part two, and we're going to talk about, about a half dozen steps to manage your hurt and how to be free from it. Uh, so that's the good news, but you got to come back next week. <laughs> there were two great blackouts in New York. There's been more than two, but the first one was 1965. The second one was 1977. Now I can tell nobody in here that I can tell was alive way back in 1965, except me probably. But uh, I remember we were amazed, 30 million people, in not just New York City, but the Eastern Seaboard, were without power for 10 hours. 10 hours, no power. One guy was interviewed on Johnny Carson, I think it was. He had been hitchhiking through the region and couldn't get a ride. And in anger, he just kicked the first thing he could find, which was a power pole. And he kicked the power pole and everything went out. And he said, I lived for days, afraid I was going to be arrested, that kicking that power pole had caused all the power to go away. It was only 10 hours, and in that 1965 blackout, people were known. New York City was known. They were famous. They received awards for being a city that helped each other in the moment of crisis. Amazing. New Yorkers came. They delivered babies for each other. They helped old people out of their apartment. They got people from one point to another. And the world was in awe that a big 
place like New York would come together and help. And New York saw its tourism go up during a tough time because of the way they treated each other in the darkness. 1977, of course, you can understand the pressure. They were in a pennant race. Billy Martin was manager of the Yankees. I mean, it was a tough time in New York. You know, son of Sam, it was not a good time. But the lights went out in New York again in 1977. This time it went out for 48 hours, or, or the better part of two days, um, uh, as opposed to 10 hours. But instead of New Yorkers helping, there were almost 4,000 arrests. There was wide-scale looting. Uh, there was over a billion dollars in goods lost to looting. There were rapes. There were murders. There were kidnappings. It, it, was, um, it was a visit to hell, as one politician put it. Now, what was the difference between New York in 1977 and New York in 1965? It wasn't that it was another generation. It's just a few years difference. It wasn't that it was in a worse part of town. No, it was the whole town both times. The difference between New York being heralded as a place where you want to be if you've got a problem and a place you don't want to be if you've got a problem is simply the way the people decided to respond. And I tell you where we're at right now. We're, we are finding the power is out in our culture, in some of our churches, in some of our lives. And I want to tell you the power is going to come back on but what is the world going to note us for when things begin to come back on? Are we going to be known as a place where in deep darkness we helped each other, things got done? Do we want to be known, the church I'm talking about in general, do we want to be known as a place with answers in a time of profound darkness? Do we want to be known that when there was no reason to trust, we trusted anyway? And will we see people flock to the churches of America because we've loved in a dark place or because we have looted and pillaged and, and torn each other apart. Now, I believe we're winning at this church. I believe we've got a lot to be thankful for. But I want to tell you, it's not totally settled in our church. It's not totally settled in our nation. I believe things are, I believe storms are coming. I believe things are going to get worse. And remember two things, grab hold of God, understand that you can't stand without him and decide that you are going to respond with love because it's only by our love that the world will respond to us. They're not going to respond to our arguments. They're not going to respond to our hatred, to our vitriol, to our accusation. Um, we may sound holy to ourselves, but we don't sound holy to anybody else. And where do we begin? My contention is that we begin with each other. What's going on around me and what kind of emphasis am I showing? Now, let me give you the background of Timothy. And we're going to run through this. We're going to run through this like we're trying to leave the darkness of New York in 1977. We're going to run fast. But I've got to give you the scenario that Paul is giving us. Paul is at the end of his life. He was left imprisoned in the end of the book of Acts, but it was house arrest. Most scholars believe that, that Paul was released 
um, at the end of the book of Acts, shortly thereafter. I believe that he was. I believe he did more evangelization. But he's in prison again now. And he's not getting out of jail this time. He's not in a rented house. He's probably in the Mamertine prison, which was an, an awful place to be. If he ate or drank water, it would be because his friends brought it to him. He says, I've run my race. I finished my course. The Lord has shown me that I'm going to be with him. The time of my departure is at hand. And then he begins to talk about some things. Here's the first thing he says. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season, out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Does that sound familiar? They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, keep your head in all situations." That's a summary statement of what I'm trying to say. We've got to learn to keep our heads in this situation that we find ourselves. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Now he was speaking to a pastor, but that can be spoken to all of us because all of us have ministry. All of us have responsibilities. All of us have folks that are in our realm of influence. Be faithful and do what God's called you to do. That's his word to all of us. The second thing that he says is this. I am already being poured out like a drink offering for the time of my departure is near. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to those who have longed for his appearing. The second thing he says is this. I know that my run is nearly over. But you are to pick up the mantle. And loved ones, I want to tell you what, what nobility it is, what magnanimity it is, what maturity it is. When you want everything to show the fruit of the way you've served, but you realize that troubled times are still ahead. I tell you, it takes boldness for a man or woman to keep teaching junior boys when society shows junior boys going to hell. It takes a great soul to believe in the church and keep serving in the church. When you realize that unless God intervenes, when you draw your last breath, things are going to be worse than when you drew your first breath. I mean, you, you've got to get in this for the long game. You've got to see that it didn't begin with you. It didn't end with you. And then he has some personal remarks. And here we find that Paul in the limited of time he has left, he's asking for some personal favors, you know, bring me this, bring me that. And then what does he do? He talks about some fellow travelers. Now he does not say, let me tell you about the scumbags that I've pastored in my time. He, he, if, or as a layman, he didn't say, let me tell you about some churches. They are not churches at all. That's why I left them. It's why I've attended 47 churches in 10 years. They're all just a bunch of scumbags. Nobody gets it except me. No, it's nothing like that. He said, now do your best to come to me quickly. 
And then he starts explaining. For Demas, because he loved this world, this present world, some translations say, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now we see that Crescens had gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Luke was still with him. He said, bring me Mark. He's helpful to me in my ministry. He said, Tychicus uh, is, is, is gone, uh, like Crescens and Titus. Uh, Tychicus is gone. But the difference is, he says, I sent them to do the work. Demas saw something in this world that he preferred to the next world, and he's forsaken me. He says, now get Mark, bring him with you, because he's helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. And then he doesn't bring up Alexander to complain about Alexander. He brings up Alexander to say, the same dog that'll bite me will bite you. So he says, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done, but you too should be on your guard. And you say, what does he mean the Lord will repay him for what he's done? Paul did something that is absolutely magnanimous and huge. He says, there's a lot I could say, but the Lord will judge him. It's not for me to judge him. It's not for you to judge him. I'm just telling you, be careful. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. Boy, that sounds like Jesus and Stephen. Don't lay this sin to their charge. But even in his recollections, he turns the upside in verse 17. He says, nobody was with me, but the Lord stood by my side and gave me strength. Now, we're going to be back in these verses next week as we talk about practical ways to deal with hurt. But um, I want to talk to you about... Um, I want to talk to you about these four people that are mentioned particularly because the four people that were in Paul's life, they're almost certainly in your life. And I want you to get some insight today. I do need to give you some ideas to ponder and a few disclaimers that will take a few minutes to go through because if we're not careful, we'll totally misunderstand this. If we don't really, loved ones, would you hear me? I think the most difficult dynamic of the Christian faith is not healing, faith for healing, is not a half dozen other things that we have all our seminars about. I think the most difficult dynamic of the Christian faith is to understand the bad things that happen to us, especially when they are caused by people, and what do we do with the people. We generally just try to forget it. We generally just try to write it off. But you know as well as I do that doesn't work because all somebody has to do is mention the name of the person that hurt you. And your mind starts going to the offense. Your mind starts wandering in the wrong direction. So let's talk for a minute about these fellow travelers. This is not, I want you to know this is not unspiritual to deal with your fellow travelers. Do you know that even Jesus had to grow in his relationships. Luke 2.52 said the child Jesus grew in wisdom. That means he grew intellectually. In stature, he grew physically. In favor with God, he grew spiritually. And with man, 
He grew relationally. Even Jesus had to grow and understand and learn, even as the Son of God, how to handle relationships because, boy, was he going to be betrayed? Was he going to be lied about? Was he going to be done wrong? Um, and, and I tell you, it's a study in itself. I wish we had time. But just to see how Jesus responded to lies and to betrayal and mistreatment. Um, oh, I wish I could respond to my troubles the way Jesus did. But you say, well, we can. Yeah, I know, but I'm a slow learner. So Jesus had to grow in relationships. The book of Proverbs, which is considered the primary source of wisdom for young Jewish men and women growing up, somebody wrote a book about Proverbs that summarizes it well. Friends, foes, and fools. There are some other side topics in there, you know, like money and stuff. But Proverbs basically says they're going to be friends, they're going to be enemies, and they're going to be people that make foolish decisions. How do you deal with them? That's the riches of Proverbs. Ben Franklin is known for saying that friends are priceless, but also pricey. What he was trying to say, and Franklin said this, he said, count the number of lifelong friends that will stay with you through no matter what. He said, you can count them on one hand and probably have two or three fingers left over. He said, but the ones you do have are priceless, but they are pricey because they will cost you everything and you, and you must pay everything, they must pay everything to have that kind of friendship. They're priceless, but they're pricey. And, and relationships are so important that if we're not careful, we, we, we don't value friendships and relationships like we need to. You know how it is, you, you'll say things to your wife that you'd never say to your boss. You know, you come in and you, you wave to the neighbors, but it's your dog you kick when you come through the door if you're in a bad mood. There's a tendency we have, and, it's, and I know why we do that. It's because we know they love us and we know we're safe. You know, our wife won't divorce us, but our boss might fire us. Now, that's not a good conclusion to come to, but that's why it happens. But we don't usually take care to guard our relationships, to, to, to measure our words. and to, we, we take friends for granted and think, oh, they love me. It'll never set us apart. Back in the uh, early 90s, I was at Promise Keepers meeting in Indianapolis at the Hoosier Dome. Over 60,000 men were there, and one of the speakers that we had said, I want to talk to you about the power of your words. And he went on and laid some principles. He said to us 60,000 men, he said, take off your shoe. And all of us took off a shoe. Boy, it was easier back then. And he said, now hold it up about chest level. And we did that. He said, now on the count of three, I want all of you to drop it. One, two, three. Now that wasn't too loud. But when you multiply that with 59,999 other shoes, I want to tell you, it, it sounded like thunder. I mean, it was, it was like the Hoosier Dome was coming down because of the rumbling of an earthquake. And then you add water on top of that. I mean, it, it really did. We were amazed. It sounded like thunder. And all we did was take off a shoe and drop it. He said, now let's try something else. He said, I want all of you men to reach up to your head and pull out one hair. 
He said, if you don't have hair, reach over to your neighbor, pull one out of their head. And so he said, hold it at the same place. He said, now on the count of three, we're all going to drop our hair. Three, two, one. It was as quiet as this. And we were amazed. We knew the hair wouldn't make any noise, but we were amazed at the noise the shoes made. And he said, if you are going to grow in your marriage, if you're going to grow in relationships and friendships, if you're going to be a vital part of a church, you've got to realize that you need to speak with words that have the weight of a hair and not the weight of a shoe. And you know what I found? That's, that was right at 30 years ago. I tell you what I've really found. I have found that we have, we have increasingly put value on our words and our opinions, whether it was wanted or not, whether it was wise or not, whether it was needed or not, because we've become a generation that has to be heard. Even if it's on Facebook or email or whatever, everybody wants to be heard. But the problem is society is, is, is unraveling because we've chosen to speak in shoe instead of hair. Man, that is profound. I, I'm just so proud of me for coming up with that, even though I stole it from the promise keeper speaker. Now, the dynamic of what I want to talk about today has three parts. We want to recognize our fellow travelers. We want to find our place in community. We don't want to just talk about people. We want to understand that the goal of this is for us to find our place in community. And we want to settle some accounts along the way. Now, there's some disclaimers. Then we're going to get right to the heart of this, I promise. The things we're going to talk about this week and next week, they don't cover every type of relationship. They don't even cover every time of type of friendship. Um, I realize that there are some people that you, you'll just never be friends with. Your personalities are so at odds or they are just, they're just, they're just mean people. Uh, you know, one of my... Ramona's little brothers, whenever somebody do something wrong, he's like five years old, he'd say, they, they don't love Jesus. You know, and loved ones, I want to tell you, there are people who don't love Jesus. There are some people that love Jesus that don't act like they love Jesus. There are some people that love Jesus, don't love you. you know, it's tough. There are going to be some people, let's be honest, you're never going to be friends with them. Um, that's why the Bible says, as much as lieth within you, live at peace with all men. In other words, he says, the writer of scripture said, I know some people will not let you live at peace with them. They just won't let you live at peace with them. And, um, uh, but to those who can live at peace, but even then you may just live at peace, but not be friends. I understand that. We're not talking about people that for some reason or another are your enemies. You know, if somebody breaks into your house and tries to kidnap your wife, you don't have any obligation to be friends with them. You know, I understand that. But um, we also need to realize that there are some people that are just beyond the realm of what we're talking about today. We also need to realize that some relationships are in transition. Some are transitioning up and getting better. Some are transitioning down. I, I've got to tell you, I know what it's like to take a friendship too far. And what I mean by that is to expect more of somebody than they were able to give. 
And it wasn't their fault. They weren't evil. It's just I wanted this, but they never wanted that. And so you, you get this thing you call betrayal, and it's not betrayal. It's not, I'm, I, I don't want a friendship like this. They don't want a friendship like this. And it was just good try, but it didn't work. There are relationships that are in translation, uh, transition. Loved ones, let me continue to qualify my statements a little bit here. It is, this is not an arrogant statement. Don't allow it to be arrogant in your heart. But some relationships you may outgrow. You may just outgrow. This was probably the number one thing about other than trying to figure out who my wife and her husband was, you know, and uh, among us Bible college students. We grew up around people and we looked up to them, our youth sponsors or whatever it was, you know, whoever it was. We thought they were just the paradigm of Christianity. And then what happens when you go home for that first Christmas or you go home and stay that first summer? This is not a criticism, but you found out that you left with them here and you here and you've been put into a program like maybe at SESL or, uh, or, or a program in a Bible college where you are laser focused on, on becoming a good Christian and becoming a better person. And you come home for Christmas or maybe the next summer and what you find out is that you're hungry for this relationship you left. But something's happened and it's like this now. And it's not because you can't be arrogant over that. But they just haven't been challenged with a grow, be better, be better, be better. And that's all you've heard. And you've grown and you've gotten better. And sometimes that was tough for a Bible college student to look at something's changed. And sometimes they said, I don't like this. This has taken away my security. Or sometimes your growth curve simply exceeds someone that has meant so much in your life. Now, I want to tell you something else that's difficult to understand about relationships. Paul and Barnabas are typical of this. When we read the book of Acts and the relationship between Paul and Barnabas started, Barnabas was the more mature one. And you hear, you hear about Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas and Paul or Saul. But before long, it's Saul and Barnabas. It's Saul and Barnabas. And Barnabas was the kind of guy that um, was just constantly building up others. He was a hands-on. If you're a two, I can make you a three. If you're a four, I can make you a six. Paul, I, I can't prove this, but Paul was more laser-focused. My opinion is that though Paul was a great lover of souls, he was a father to many, many people, and he was a good father. Saul had his tender side, but I think Saul's personality was more of an A-type personality, and Saul had a tendency to see things black and white more than someone like Barnabas did. And they came to a, a, a disagreement over Mark. Mark went on the first missionary journey with them, and he went home. I don't know why he went home. I know everybody that has ever gotten homesick feels God's telling them to go home. I don't stand in judgment of Mark. We don't know why he went home. He could have been sick. I mean, there could have been a good reason for him to go home. But when Barnabas said, let's take him with us on our second journey, the gracious nature of Barnabas said, let's give him a second chance. Paul said, not on my watch. 
And he, he uttered one of his wisest statements, not found in any scripture except the Chitty Revised Standard Version. And it says, same dog, don't bite me twice. He's not going with us, you know. And uh, the Bible says the contention became so strong. And I've known people like that. They, they have an amazing touch of God on their life, but they are a pain in the neck to work with. I mean, really, I've, I've, I've worked with people like that. I've known people like that. And you have too. You don't doubt their devotion to the Lord. Nobody would ever doubt Paul's devotion, but they were not an easy match if you weren't just like them. Barnabas said, let's give him another chance. Paul said, no. And these two men, man, it was like Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin breaking up. These two men, it says, they came so sharp, they divided. And Barnabas took Mark and went this way to Cyprus. And Paul took, um, did I say, he took Mark and went to Cyprus. And Paul took Silas and went on another missionary journey. Now, you say, well, that just goes to show well, it goes to show there are some things we can't figure out. We don't know who was wrong. We don't know if Paul was wrong. We don't know if Barnabas was wrong. We don't know if Paul was too harsh or if Barnabas was too soft. The probability is that they both had a perspective that needed to be brought to the table. And quite frankly, I think if they had just talked longer, they could have worked it out. But who am I to say to somebody like Paul and Barnabas, this is what you should have done. I'm not even worthy to carry their bags. But I'm telling you, there will be some relationships that you just seem to come to a dead end over, and it may be years before you get it worked out. I think we know the resolution later, but we don't see these guys coming back together. Um, life just gets very, very complimented. I'll tell you what I believe God is doing now. It's the same thing he's always done. Y'all still with me? Good, because we're almost finished. I don't want you to miss the end. Um, God is lining up things in our lives. I believe that storms are approaching. And I'll repeat, God is bringing us enough difficulty that we sooner or later must come to the place where we say, Lord, we can't handle this. You have to handle this. And he is bringing us to the place we're like the citizens of New York. We're going to decide if we're going to let our love show or if we're going to let our lust show. Whether we're going to find that my job is to help people through the darkness or my job is to take advantage of the darkness. Now, let's talk about these fellow travelers. Now, it's taken you long enough to get here. So let's, let's give it the time that it deserves. I think we spent the first part of this sermon deciding we're going to settle. Now, next week, how to settle. But right now, let's just see if maybe Paul's troubles, Paul's friends might match up with yours. You say, well, Paul had it easy. He wasn't married. If he had a wife like mine, he wouldn't have been so happy. Let me give you a bit of thus saith the Lord. Don't say that. Don't say that. Even if you think it's true, don't say that. You always run into trouble when you try to decide who's had the worst struggles. Because you may have struggles A, B, C, your neighbor may have D, E, F, and you may say this is worse than this, but it might not be to him or to her. We're all different, our struggles are different, and we'll never get anywhere in the kingdom of God comparing ourselves to others. 
The first man he introduces us to was Demas. I want you to know, loved ones, every one of you, there will be some on your journey who desert you. Yeah, but they'll come back. Not if they're a Demas. There are some folks that will desert you when you need them most. We know from the scripture that Demas was a worthy worker with Paul. But now Paul is on his deathbed. Well, metaphorically speaking, he's about to be beheaded. He's not going to die because of sickness. He's about to lose his head. And Paul is on the equivalent of being on his deathbed. And at that moment when Paul needed his friends more than ever before, Demas decides it's not worth the price I've been paying all these years. And I'm not only going to do this for myself, I'm going to do this even though it hurts Paul. Now everyone has moments of weaknesses, but this appears to be, it may not have been, been mean-spirited. It may not be that Demas had an argument with Paul, but it appears to be a calculated action that took place at Paul's most vulnerable moment. Now, Crescens, as I said, Tychicus, Tychus, they're away, but they're away on assignment. Paul knows what they're doing and he knows they'll be coming back. But Demas's motivation seems to be rooted in self-serving carnality. And let me say this, please hear me before we go on to number two. It is not uncommon for you to find yourself with many, if not all of your friends pulled away from you. I have known a couple of times in my life when I felt like everybody, everybody, I know it wasn't true, but I felt like everybody had pulled away or if they hadn't pulled away, they just weren't doing anything. It's probably not that I am an Elijah, not by a long shot, but it's probably like Elijah felt when he complained to the Lord, even though there were thousands of other prophets, even though he had made his servants stay behind. He said, I alone am left. And loved ones, I think part of the making of a man or woman of God is to feel alone. I think, I think if you are 100% obedient to the Lord, you will still feel alone at times. This is the challenge of feeling alone. Is it because of God's sovereignty or Satan's malignancy? In other words, is God doing this or is Satan doing this? And you know what I have found? The answer is yes. Yes. The devil is puppeteering some people, but God is withdrawing some people because the wilderness battles are won alone. Ask Jesus. You think about, well, I, I don't deserve what happened to me. Well, think about David. David had his problems. Oh, Lord. That's why I know David's last name was Chitty. He had problems. He had so many failures. But on his way, he's betrayed by his own son. I can think of a few things worse than that. Betrayed by his own son. And he's running for his life. And at the moment, he is trying to live another day. Shimei comes out of nowhere and says, You know why you're having this trouble, don't you? Because of your sin. It's because of your wretchedness. The way you've lived is a sham. It's a mockery. It's a shamockery. David, you deserve to die, and I'm glad this is happening to you. Now, David's men weren't going to put up with that. They said, uh, King, if you'll give me leave for just three minutes, 
this, this will end. This trial will end. David said no. He said, David knew when we're at our lowest, that's not the time to analyze everything. He said, I think he's wrong, but who knows if God is trying to point out something in my life. Boy, that's a tough place to be. It is a tough place to be when you are being blasted and the scariest thought you have is that they might be right. Even just a little bit. God, that's my least favorite place to be. Let me tell you what I learn about people that desert you, like Shimei from the life of David. Number one, critics always come at the worst possible times. If he had these real issues with David, he could have approached him years earlier. Number two, critics almost never understand the big picture. He didn't understand what God was doing in the life of David. Number three, critics offer their input when you are least able to deal with their complaints. Number four, critics never realize they're the least qualified to criticize you. We need to have an intercessory prayer group for college football coaches. Everybody in America that's a football fan, everyone, you included, whether you're Clemson or USC or the, or the Gators, we all feel that way. We all feel qualified. We could have made a better call fourth quarter. What was he thinking putting Papoofnik in when he had so-and-so? You know, if I were coach, and man, I tell you what, we either worship the coach on Sunday or we blast him to hell on Sunday. And it's because we would have done better. We know the play. We, you know, we, and we've never even played peewee football. <laughs> As the way critics are. And critics usually show up at a time when you are least able to do anything about what might be valid with their complaint. That's the way people are. And, and right now, all of you are thinking of somebody, yeah, yeah. Just don't, just don't look around at anybody. Just, yeah, we all know that. So we have a Demas that will desert us when we need them the most. We have, um, number two, we have Alexanders. Many of us have Alexanders. Now, the thing about Alexanders is they have the most potential to poison your life because they are trying to destroy you. Ademus is just serving his own goals, but an Alexander is trying to destroy you. This is more than hurts or snubs. These are the actions, uh, the actions of Alexander were designed to cripple or kill, at least on some level. And loved ones, I want to tell you, it's hard to believe. And those of you that are new Christians, just giving your heart to the Lord, I hate to tell you this, but there are going to be some people, and some of them in church, that will so shock you that you can't believe they'd do it, and it will almost paralyze you. There are Alexanders in businesses. There are Alexanders in schools. There are Alexanders in churches. There are Alexanders in political events. There are Alexanders that abound. And loved ones, you've got to settle the issue that there are people that will hurt you no matter if it's terminal or not. But you've also got to decide how you're going to deal with the Alexanders. Now, forgiveness doesn't mean that you take in Alexander's, you know, and invite him to your dinner table. No, it just means you settle it. I'm, I'm going to leave Alexander to the Lord. 
the Lord will deal with Alexander. I'm not letting him anywhere in my life. And I don't think you ought to enter, let him anywhere in your life. But Paul didn't say, let me tell you what this scoundrel did. He just said, he did me a lot of harm. Now, maybe Timothy knew, maybe Timothy didn't know. He probably did. But all Paul had to say is, let me put him in perspective and I'm leaving him to the Lord. But there will be people like Alexander's that will just shock you and will absolutely blow you away. I wish I could tell you that that doesn't happen to good Christians, but if it happened to Jesus, it'll happen to you. And then there was a third one. There was Mark. Let me tell you something. This is, a, this is now we've just turned the corner to a little good news. So far, we've dealt with people that run off and leave you, and we've dealt with people that want to kill you. Other than that, let's go to number three. Mark, there will be some who fail you in a time of great need. But if you'll refuse bitterness, if you'll give it time and grace and forgiveness, the relationship is able to be restored and even made better. See, we all carry scars of someone that really let us down. But what we saw in their behavior was them at their worst or them being inexperienced. Mark might have been too young to bear the responsibility that was placed on him by Paul or even by Barnabas on that missions trip. We don't know the what, the why behind the offense, but the determining factor is whether two parties are able to come together and work through the issues. This is what I want to tell you. If somebody has hurt you, don't write them off too quickly. See, this is what I don't think most Christians understand. We think people are either our enemies or our friends, but there are several holding corrals where you just put situations and you just say, we've got to let this process. We've got to let this process. We've got to see what's what. If you really believe that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord, who are the called according to his purpose, do you understand, loved ones, that that even applies to people that have done you wrong? I'm not doing this because of you. I'm doing it because of me. I just, I wish I'd understood this 67 years ago. I could have saved myself a lot of trouble. Could have saved my wife a whole passel of trouble if I'd understood this. Sometimes people hurt you because they're in their own wilderness and they don't know what to do. They're in their wilderness. You need food and drink, and they don't have food and drink for themselves. Sometimes people let you down. Y'all still with me now? Sometimes people let you down because they are in a process of learning what they are not as well as what they are. I'm, I, maybe it's because of the way I learned, but I believe God spent nearly as much time, at least before I came here, I think God spent as much time putting me in situations I did not fit so that I might begin to learn what I did fit. I, I, God put me in enough situations that I had to understand I couldn't measure up to the expectations of my home church people sometimes, but I could measure up to the Lord's expectations.
And when someone's going through that, you need to give them a little patience, a little grace, because they don't know how to get out of what they're in. And they may hurt you in the process. Sometimes people are going through bad relationships because they did wrong. Sometimes it's because they had wrong done to them. Sometimes the timing that you chose was flawed or their timing was flawed or, 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 or your timing could be flawed. Sometimes, and this happens a lot, the longer I live and the longer I see people go in ministry, a lot of times people are pressured out of their call to do something else. It's the old Peter principle. I, you were good with this, so you'll be great at this. No, this is the level of your calling. This is the level of your anointing. And we put unrealistic expectations on somebody. Well, if they did this, they ought to be able to do this. Not if this is the only thing they have grace for. No. I, 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 I think I do okay pastoring two or 3,000 people in our church family. I, th I think I'm, a, I think I'm a, at least every day but Monday, I think I'm a pretty good pastor. <laughs> I know I can't do this, that, or the other with that many people, but I think I'm a pretty good pastor. But I don't think I have the grace to pastor 10,000 people. You say, why not? Because I think pastors smell like sheep. I think shepherds smell like sheep. And I think with 10,000 people, the shepherd can't smell like sheep. He just, he can't get to everybody. So I would beat the daylights out of myself trying to be a shepherd to 10,000 people. I can't do it up here. I, it would drive me crazy, but I can do it here. And I think it's important for us in our friendships, our businesses, our relationships. I think it's important for us to realize what we are and what we are not. And then we need to realize that about each other and give each other grace. Now, here's the last one and we're done. You will have a Demas that lets you down. You'll have an Alexander that wants to kill you. You'll have a Mark that has, you had such high expectations for, but they've gone their own way but you have hopes they'll come back. And we need to end on a positive note. You need to find that Luke in your life. He said, only Luke is with me. And you know what we find out? Except for the logistics of ministry, from the time Luke joined himself to Paul, they were never separated. They stayed together. There will be some who by the grace of God never leave your side. They are as constant as the North Star. They will travel the journey with you, sometimes never straying from your side. And if assignments from God or situations cause them to have to move away from you, just as soon as they are released, they run right back. You need to thank God for people like that. I was thinking the other day of people that have been with me at this church going on 28 years. I don't know what, I don't know if they are mentally deficient <laughs> or they just feel sorry for me. Or you know what? Maybe they are filled with the DNA of Luke. He's always there. You, you need to learn to thank God for your wife that has stayed with you through the high points and low points. Your husband, 
the high points and low points. You need to thank God for friends that may not have a lot of stuff to bring to the table, but they're always there. We need to understand that the little things in life need to be held close because one day, sooner or later, we'll realize that the little things in life are the big things in life. And that's why we find out that sometimes the little people in our lives are the big people in our lives. Loved ones, right now, I'm telling you, no matter what you've been through on your journey, whatever you've been through on your journey, if you look, you can find a Demas. If you look, you can probably find an Alexander. If you look, you can find a mark. And can I tell you this? We really need to have our radar out for the marks right now because this is a season prodigals are about to come home. People that we've given up on are about to come home. Children that we've given up on are about to come home. People that have fallen out of favor with the church are about to come home. And we need to realize that the people that we once wrote off, we're going to be able, like Paul said of Mark, to say, bring them home because they are profitable to me for the ministry. And while we're letting God help us work through the Demas and the Alexander and wait for the Lukes, we need to celebrate, or, or the Marks, we need to celebrate the Lukes that are hand in hand with us. Holy Spirit, right now I ask you to help us take a look at the mixed multitude. Show us the wounds and the scars and the stories that have been a part of our journey. We invite you for help. We invite you for help. We invite you for help. We say, come Holy Spirit. I ask that you would work right now and all this week as we prepare to embrace those steps of recovery next week. Loved ones, if there's anyone here that you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, whether you're here in the sanctuary or in Brown Chapel, or if you're listening online, this is a great day to come to the Lord. Our ministry teams are moving into position here. They're going to be ready to pray with you. And if you're listening online and you don't know Jesus, there'll be a phone number that comes up on your screen. People are waiting to pray with you. You may want to come forward for prayer, not to give your heart to the Lord. You may already be a Christian, but you may want to come forward for prayer because the Lord is showing you something about your wounds and your scars and um, your stories. And I'm not bringing condemnation. I'm not saying you need to tell anybody. But I'm saying, I know what it's like to realize I'm carrying stuff the Lord never intended me to carry. I'm giving, a, I'm, I'm giving ear to things that I should never listen to. I'm giving space to grievances that should never be allowed in my life. And if you're feeling that way, you may just want to come and just get in the presence of the Lord and just worship. You may want to do that from your seat. But I encourage you, wherever you are, if you can even give it five minutes in the presence of the Lord as Pastor Glenn and the worship team bring us back into his presence, I want you to know this is a new day. It's a new day. And God is in the process of doing some beautiful surgery to remove our wounds and scars. 
at least not make them toxic anymore. At least stop the bleeding. Father, do your work, I pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Would you stand with me? If you want to come for prayer, whether here in chapel or sanctuary, or if you want to call in for prayer, please do so. Thank you for listening to me today. Thank you for joining us on the journey to fullness. I love you. God bless you.